Heavenly Father, you brought us back here after a nice break, a chance to celebrate the birth of your son and be with family and friends and take time away. And that's refreshed us, Father. I pray that all of us have come in with uh, greater strength of spirit, ready to learn again and to pick up where we left off. I'm excited to pick up again, Father, in teaching. And I thank you for the insight you've offered to me as I've studied and for the insight you'll offer to the students who will hear me. Uh, Even as I may say one thing, Father, you have the, the correct answer for all things. And I know, Father, you'll be teaching in this room through your spirit. And so, Father, we, we look, look forward to that. We know we enter into a section of this book, Father, that has commonly been a source of some confusion or some controversy. Uh, Father, that's to be expected as we enter into deep things and meaningful things, Father. It's, it's the fact that our mind and our, our understanding is so limited that we would run into uh, disagreements, Father. We don't want for that. We want to understand and be clear, and we want to be sure so that we may follow you and uh, repeat only the truth from what we learn. So we look forward, Father, to you clarifying all these things for us, as you may choose to, using me to do that, Father, or doing it without me, Father, however you choose. And we ask, Father, that in all we learn, it wouldn't puff us up or wouldn't give us a cause for concern, but rather, Father, it would just leave us in awe of you and all of your sovereign majesty and your work and, and preparation for us to come into this life and to serve you in the day to come. All the things you've laid out from the foundations of the earth, Father. We just want to be in awe of that. And uh, even if we can't understand it all, Father, we can still understand that it can only come from a God who made everything. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're entering into a section of Scripture that is easily some of the most exciting and challenging and controversial parts of the Bible that you could name. Most people have at least studied some or read some of it or been exposed to it in one fashion or another. But I find that in some ways that's actually a, a detriment to our understanding of it. That is to say, a lot of us know a little bit, and perhaps that's the problem. Some of us know nothing of it yet, which is not a bad thing, and some of us may have studied it extensively. But in all cases, we just want to go to the text and do what we always do here, which is let the text speak to us, read it and take it for what it says, and stay bound by it. And that's the way I intend to teach it. Our previous lesson ended in Romans 8, verse 30, where we reached the point of that glorious chain of events that Paul declared was the future for every believer, the ultimate consequence of our salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, is that we are all assured of this future glory with Christ. And that assurance is not based on anything of ourselves. Paul's chain of events that leads us into glory, it's entirely a work of God on our behalf. We saw that last time. It began with God's choice of us before the foundations of the earth. And then what followed was an unbreakable, undeniable chain of links. And as Paul described each link, he connected it with the prior link in such a way that there could be no doubt that if the first link becomes true for you or for me, the rest of the links will naturally follow. They cannot be separated. For everyone God includes in the plan of salvation, he will not fail to finish the work that he begins. And as I ended the last session, I explained that every believer in the church, whether past or present or future, sits, as it were, on the fifth link in that chain. We all have been foreknown by God. We have all been predestined to become His child. We've all been called on a certain day into faith. And we were all justified in God's sight by our faith. And that's where we all sit. Even those who have died still remain at that place. They have yet to see the final step. So we all collectively are waiting for that final link in the chain, the link in which, as Paul says, we are glorified. We receive our glorified bodies. That's the main thrust of Paul's argument in this chain. That's why he laid out every step of the chain so carefully. If there are five links for everyone, then that sixth one has to come to pass. Paul draws your attention to where you sit on the chain today because he wants you to make the conclusion that it's inconceivable that God would take you five-sixths of the way through the process only to stop there and somehow lose sight of the end. If God has taken us this far by His power, no less, and not because of anything we've done, then how can we have any doubt for His ability to bring us to the final link? That was the concluding idea Paul gave us. And to assume otherwise, to assume, for example, you can get that far and everything fall apart for whatever reason is both illogical and unbiblical. The only conclusion you can make from what Paul argued is that the God who has already done everything necessary to bring us this far is proving to us his intent to take us all the way by the very fact that he put us in the process at all. And that's the conclusion Paul makes. Where we go next, verse 31. Paul says, 
as a concluding statement, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now Paul asks this question because it's the one raised by that unbreakable chain. If God is working so hard to bring you to him in a day to come, what can stop that? And it's not a rhetorical question. Paul actually gives some possible answers to it here in a minute and addresses each of them. But we already know what the answer is going to be, right? The answer is no one, nothing. The highest power in the universe has determined you will be glorified in a day to come. No other actor or power has the capability to change that plan. So it puts an end to any concern for your eternal security. In those moments of, of despair or frustration or, or of temptation, when you might let your mind wander just a bit into the potential that perhaps you're now in jeopardy or your own lack of commitment to the faith or sticking with the disciplines of the church or whatever, and you find yourself suddenly wandered away and you wonder, is that the end of me with God? Remember, if the most powerful actor in the universe, God, the creator of all things, has determined you will be glorified, who are you to stop him? Nothing will stop him. So Paul says the ultimate proof that God will not be swayed in his support for us is seen in the very fact of his willingness to put Christ on the cross for your sake. Once again, what Paul's asking you to consider is just understand the implications of what you already know to be true. If the Father took the thing that's most precious to him, his only begotten Son, and delivered him over to die a horrible death for your sake, doing that so that he could bring you and me into his presence glorified, having already foreknown and predestined us to that outcome in the process, how ridiculous then would it be to consider that after God had gone to such great extremes to accomplish those things for our sake, that he would then allow his plan to fall short for any reason whatsoever. It would make a mockery of his choice to put his son to death for your sake. That's why Jesus says this in John chapter six, thirty-seven. He says, All that the Father gives me, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise up on the last day. Now I want you to notice Jesus' choice of verbs. In that brief passage, John six thirty-seven through 39, you will find in his choice of verbs all the links in the chain we just studied in Romans 8. For example, he says, The Father gives Jesus the people that Jesus will save, foreknowing, predestining. Then he says, Those that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus, called. And then he says, Those who come will not be rejected, justified. And in verse 39, Jesus concludes that all that the Father give him in this way, Jesus loses none. All will be glorified. All the steps in the chain. You can sum up Paul's analysis with a simple but very profound statement. God only calls and justifies those he intends to glorify. The Bible calls these people the elect. Because God selects them out from among all fallen humanity to receive the glory, to receive all that God has. You and I are not standing on that fifth link of Paul's chain because of your merits or because of your efforts or even because of your desire to be saved. Those are consequences of what God has done. You're there because God put you there. Just as John himself wrote in John 1, 12 through 13, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then listen to what he adds. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were given, he says, to have the right to be children of God. And John says, God didn't give them this blessing because of any family connection, blood, or because of their good works, works of flesh, or not even because of their own desire to be saved, the will of man. He says, those things came to pass because solely God elected them to be. And Paul says it in 1 Corinthians this way, 1 Corinthians one thirty, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's that chain again. Jesus became to us, that is, it was given to us, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and glorification, redemption, in other words. And if God has elected you, let that sink in for a minute. If God has elected you to be in glory with him from before the foundations of the earth, can you imagine anything that can stop God from getting that plan? It's impossible. It's logically impossible. Paul explores some of those so-called possibilities, these, the ideas that sometimes we propose to ourselves or others that might lead us out of God's glory, out of salvation. Paul explores a few of those to end the chapter. And he says it this way in verse 33. He says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Speaking of you and I. He says, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Well, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Well, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul begins in verse 33 with that simple question. That is the next logical thing you would say to what you've learned is, can our enemy stop the plan? I mean, let's just go straight to the top of the chain. Of all the bad things in life, let's go to the guy that's in charge of them all. Could Satan be at all possible? Could he, could he tempt us? Could he sway us? Could he confuse us? Could he lead us to do things that cause us to separate from God? Perhaps you might imagine him coming before the throne with some kind of damning accusation, you know, some terrible secret sin in your life that you don't think anybody knows. And he discovers it. He is the great accuser of the brethren. So maybe he goes before God's throne and brings that before God. You sort of imagine God saying, Oh man, if I'd only known about that. If I've only seen that coming. Well, Paul says, remember, God is the one who has declared you justified. God is the judge. So if the judge has already acquitted you of sin, then he's not going to entertain any new arguments from the prosecutor. The case is closed. How can you be condemned for sin, Paul says, when the one who has the power to condemn you has already taken that condemnation on himself? Right? Whatever condemnation you had coming for whatever you have done, past, present, or future, was laid on Christ. So as the accuser might pick one of those sins to bring before Christ, he's going to hear the same answer every time. Paid for. Paid for. Yeah, paid for. Yeah, that one too. Paid for those. They're all paid for. And now he sits at the right hand of God as your advocate, Paul says. Therefore, no sin you commit, no matter how grievous, can separate you from the love of God. Then Paul asks in verse 35, Well then, who else might separate us? If the enemy doesn't have the power to do it, could it come from some other unexpected corner? Maybe some tribulation, he asks, or some distress. A tribulation in this context is an external threat to your peace, while a distress is a more personal inner difficulty of some kind. What about persecution? Perhaps something that might lead you to deny Christ, you know, the way Peter did. Or perhaps a famine that would cause you to become a, a thief, to steal, to turn your back on God out of anger or frustration. Or nakedness, kind of an odd one in the list, isn't it? Nakedness, it's really a reference to public shame. Maybe somebody would shame you into repudiating Christ. Or peril, which means a physical act of violence against you. You know, the old trite thing that people will pull out sometimes in a conversation about whether or not you can possibly hold to your testimony you've ever heard the the stupid example of someone puts a gun to your wife's head and says you either repudiate christ or i'm going to shoot her right we all think oh well i would just say i'm not going to repudiate christ goodbye honey which is not exactly how real life goes as much as we want that to be the way we think of ourselves in real life that's probably not what we would do last one on the list sword it just refers to public execution so can any of those things separate us Well, before I give you the answer, which you should already know, did you notice something interesting about that list? The seven things Paul lists are an inventory of what the Lord experienced on his way to the cross. He endured all those things for our sake. So this is Paul's subtle point. 
Whatever has the potential to cause us to act in unfaithful ways, Christ already walked down that very road and he did everything right already. He was faithful all the way to death in the face of every one of those things. And since we have been credited with Christ's perfect life on the basis of our faith, it matters not what we would do under any of those circumstances, not in the sense of our salvation, because Christ has already done them for us. That's what Paul means in verse 37 when he says, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. That's what he's saying. Now some have looked at that verse and said it this way, oh, because you're in Christ, you can conquer all these things, which is complete nonsense. And there are plenty of real-life examples of Christians who have fallen at every one of these perils. So we know it's not a precept of Scripture that you are Superman or invincible because you are a Christian. That's not Paul's point. Paul's not promising that we will always be victorious in our troubles in life. What he's saying is, Christ was victorious. Christ conquered these things, and since you have been credited with his success, you can't be defeated by them now. You can be troubled by them, But your eternal future isn't determined by them because Christ already won that for you. So even if you should fail at one of these steps along the way, Christ's success will stand in the place of your failure on the day of your judgment. So you have been credited with his faithfulness. You've been credited with his victory. So now you can never be separated from the love of God. And that leads Paul into verses 38 and 39 where he gives perhaps his most sweeping and powerful statement of assurance for every believer. He says, given all that he's argued throughout this chapter, he says that Paul has the full conviction and confidence that you cannot be separated from God for any reason. And I think of all the people in the world that I can ever think of whose personal conviction would matter most to me on matters of spiritual importance, I don't know of anyone I'd take as a greater source than Paul. Right? If Paul's convictions are such, I have a lot of reason to trust what he's saying. To ensure you understand how sure Paul's convictions are, he adds this series of ten forces, you might call them, that represent the extremities of things in this life and in the next. You can't reach things more extreme this side of the grave or the other side of the grave than the things that he lists in this list. And he negates every one of them. The first he introduces here, the first pair is death or life, you notice. Well, what he's saying is nothing on this side of the grave, nothing on the other side of the grave holds the power to separate you from God. And then to be more specific, he starts to list a few examples. No spiritual power, no earthly power. No present existence, no future existence. No power is greater than God. You can't go high enough to be out of his reach, which is a good thing for astronauts, by the way. A Christian astronaut is not going to have to worry that if they go to Mars or something, that somehow that puts them outside the love of God. I mean, I don't know that that's what Paul meant, but I'm taking it literally that way. You can't go deep enough either. Divers are just as assured. Simply put, nothing in creation is capable of coming between us and the Lord who saved us and promised us glory in a day to come. Now, for perhaps most of us, nothing I've said here is tremendously new. We all believe this coming in the door. and Maybe it was just a bit of a reaffirmation and an encouragement to you. But there are those in the body of Christ, and maybe some in here who wrestle with this concept, may believe it one day, may doubt it the next, may feel it's a strong certainty of Scripture on one occasion, and then because of some poor teaching or confusion on their part, they they lose that confidence. What a horrible way to walk through your life as a Christian. It, It paralyzes you. That's the effect of worrying about a salvation that's already assured, is it burns up cycles of energy in your head and your heart that could have been put to use in other things for the kingdom. It gets us focused inwardly instead of outwardly. It gets us thinking about us instead of about Christ and his power through us. It's very important for reasons more than just the peace and security that it offers. It's very important that we teach and train all those who would listen to us within the body of Christ of the certainty of the glorification that awaits them. Now with that statement, the first act in Paul's thesis on righteousness comes to a very dramatic close. And if you have that chart I asked you to pull out earlier, if you look down the left side of your structure of Romans chart, you'll see Paul's logical development of his thesis now coming to its close here in chapter 8. I mean, he's walked us through this series of ideas very carefully, very methodically. He began explaining what righteousness is, kind of defining it, why we need it. He explained how mankind errs in trying to find it in all these wrong ways. And then he explained the one and only way that you can have it, that is that God grants it to you. 
He proved that that's been the plan since the beginning of time, since the Old Testament. He reflected on the implications of that plan in the life of everyone who is saved by it. And then he ended here with the most important implication of all. That is, we are his forever without any doubt at all. God is faithful to do just as he's promised. Now, before we go into Paul's second act of this book, as I call it, the second act, you may have noticed that I skipped over verse 36. I read it, but I didn't say a word about it. It was intentional, and I'm going to address it now. In that verse, Paul punctuates his argument by quoting from Psalm 44. And the psalmist declares, speaking as Israel, that God has allowed his children to be killed by their enemies all day long. Now, the psalmist is lamenting Israel's difficult circumstances as they suffered under God's judgment. And that phrase, killed all day long, is euphemism, obviously. As Calvin explains, the psalmist intimated that death was so suspended over them that their life differed but little from death. It's like they expected death at any moment. So Israel has known many generations of such suffering as a consequence for violating the Old Covenant. And they've been overrun by enemies, they've been exiled, persecuted, killed. And as the psalmist remarks, these things come at the hand of God as a result of his will for his own people. Now Paul's point in quoting that psalm was simply to demonstrate that throughout the history of Israel, God's people have always been made to suffer at times by God's hand. As the psalmist says, God's people are considered by God as sheep to be slaughtered. So if necessary, God may bring us to death to achieve an eternally good purpose in us. The point of that is, nothing that happens to us in this life, not even death itself, is outside God's plan. It's all under God's authority. So it's no threat to his promises to us. After all, he's the one who gives life. He's the one who takes life. There is no one else. But even with that explanation, don't you think that was kind of an odd verse? Kind of an odd choice that Paul picks in support, in proof of his argument. In fact, if you look at the whole psalm from which this is taken, I'm going to read most of it, not all of it, but I'm going to read most of Psalm 44. I want you to listen to it. And as you listen to what he chose to quote from, Paul's choice is going to become even more interesting and perplexing. Start in verse 9. The psalmist says, speaking to God as Israel, he says, You have rejected us and brought us to dishonor, and do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten, and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply, and have not profited from the sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we've not forgotten you, and we've not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, our steps have not deviated from your way, and yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust and our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Now, after you read the psalm, you get the point that this is a lamentation spoken by Israel on behalf of the the, uh, psalmist speaks it on behalf of Israel. He says the nation feels rejected by their God. He seems to have forsaken his people. He's rejecting them, leaving them to the mercy of adversaries who want to destroy them. They are derision, a reproach, reviled, on and on. He says they're sold cheaply, like they're, they're scattered like sheep, they're like slaves. Now, as you hear all that, None of that seems like the kind of psalm you'd want to point to when you want to try to demonstrate you can have confidence in God to protect you, to be on your side. Doesn't it seem to argue for the opposite of that? You know, Paul was arguing nothing can separate you from the love of God. And in the midst of that argument, Paul cites a psalm whose major theme is a lamentation about Israel's seeming rejection by God. If anything, it should be, as I said, make an opposite argument. Isn't it kind of curious that Paul chose that psalm? But if you look at the psalm again, you do find an interesting detail toward the end. At the end of the psalm, just after the part that Paul quoted, the psalmist turns 
somewhat optimistic. In verse 23, the psalmist describes God rejecting his people as if he were asleep. Because he asks God to come awake, come out of his sleep. And he points to God as awakening at some point. And as he awakens, so to speak, that he would cease his rejection of his people and return to them. And so he asked the Lord to rise up and to be their help from their affliction, to redeem the people of Israel for the sake of God's loving kindness. Now that word, loving kindness, is important. It's always in reference to covenants. Loving kindness is a special Bible word that describes the Lord's willingness to condescend, to make covenants with men, and of his unconditional faithful keeping of his promises to men. So what the psalmist is referring to here is the Lord's covenants with Israel, and he's appealing to the Lord to be faithful to his promises to Israel. That's what he means when he says loving kindness. So again, why did Paul quote this psalm to argue the point of eternal security? Why pick a passage that seems to speak about the jeopardy of God rejecting his own people? Well, he picked it because of what the psalmist said at the end. Despite the Lord's hard treatment of his people at various times in history, the end ultimately will be determined by God's faithfulness. Just as your own life has many turns and twists and trials and disappointments, you cannot judge God's faithfulness to you until you see how everything ends. You just can't pick a certain day, you know, your worst day, and say, God, you've forsaken me, a la David in the desert. What you have to wait is for the end of days. And then you'll know whether God has been faithful. And the psalmist declares confidently that the Lord's loving kindness will prevail in the end for Israel. So this is why Paul uses this passage. It sets up the next three chapters. Paul wanted to draw his readers' attention to this question of Israel. Israel's relationship with the Lord is a complicated situation. It's one that, on the face of it, would seem to argue against Paul's teaching on eternal security. Because at the time that Paul wrote this letter to Rome, the church was quickly becoming a Gentile-only organization. What had started as a Jewish movement in Jerusalem was now largely centered in Asia Minor among Gentiles. What's more, the vast majority of Jews in Paul's day had rejected Christ as their Messiah. And in fact, Jews were frequently persecuting those who declared that Jesus was the Messiah. So, if you lived in Paul's day, at the time he wrote this letter, it was becoming increasingly apparent, and if you were a Jewish believer especially, it was becoming very apparent to you that your own people, Jewish people, were not going to embrace Christ as Messiah. And if they do not acknowledge Jesus as Messiah then the people of Israel cannot be saved. If they are not saved, then what does that say about the faithfulness of God? Didn't God promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would have innumerable descendants who would receive the promises of a kingdom in glory? So you could ask right now at this point, at the end of eight, is God rejecting his own people? Because that's the conclusion you'd be tempted to come to based on Paul's argument. Remember what Paul has already proven here. Paul has proven that righteousness comes only through faith in Christ, not by some birth lineage to Abraham. So just because you're born a Jew doesn't give you a get-into-heaven-free card. But we covered that earlier in this book. So if a Jewish person or the Jewish nation as a whole is to receive the promises that God gave to their forefathers, then it must come to pass that that nation accept Jesus. There's no other way. But in Paul's day, it wasn't happening. In fact, the church was becoming less and less Jewish by the day. Yet Paul has just said, God is in control of the saving process. Paul just declared that God elects from before the foundations of the earth who will be his. If Israel's rejection of Jesus is the state of affairs in Paul's day, that would seem to suggest God has actually rejected them by not electing them to salvation. You see what we're saying? If God has rejected Israel in that day and instead turned to receive Gentiles, how can you and I be sure that God won't one day reject us? How can you feel secure in your own salvation when you see God's people, Israel, being rejected by God, not being brought into faith during that first century period, or for that matter, even now? What's to stop God from doing the same to us someday? Remember, the leadership in the church at this time in Rome were Jews who had received the gospel originally at Pentecost, then traveled to Rome and founded the Roman church. Many of those Jewish founders were probably still leading the church in this day. And Paul knew that when they received this letter, 
This would be the sensitive question that would be rising in their mind if not spoken out loud. That is, we hear what you're saying, Paul, about God and about his plan and about his faithfulness. But when I look at our own history and our own people, I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing rejection. And so Paul knew he needed to address that question. He inserts this quote from a psalm that every Jew would have understood was a lamentation over God's rejection with a hope attached for his loving kindness in the end and uses it as a springboard into the next three chapters. In the next three chapters, Paul focuses on one question. What about Israel? More specifically, why didn't God elect Israel to receive their Messiah when he came to them, just as he promised to them? What does Israel's situation say about his faithfulness? Has God forsaken his people as the psalmist feared? Or will God one day fulfill his promises to his people as the psalmist pleaded at the end of Psalm 44? So Paul spends three chapters addressing that question. What about Israel? And in chapter 9, Paul reviews Israel's past relationship with God. That is the history of Israel because it's important understanding what God is working to achieve in that nation. In chapter 10, Paul moves to exploring Israel's present circumstances now that they have rejected Messiah. Paul's dividing point, by the way, between past and present is the coming of Messiah. So chapter 10 now examines God's plan for Israel during the present time, all the time since Christ's first coming. And then finally in chapter 11, Paul reveals God's future plan for his people. He'll explain how God remains faithful to Israel just as the psalmist hoped, and he explains why Israel's temporary rejection is necessary in order to achieve good things as God promised. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about Israel. What about Israel? Israel's past, Israel's present, Israel's future. And together they solve this dilemma, putting to rest any concerns that Israel's situation should cast any doubt for us on God's faithfulness. Now, before you dive into the start of chapter 9, I want you to take a brief look at another chapter. Page forward a little bit and look at the very beginning of chapter 12. Compare the opening line of that chapter with the ending of chapter 8. You can flip back and forth for a second. You'll notice the two chapters flow together almost seamlessly. In fact, if I were to go to your Bible right now and rip out chapters 9 through 11, first of all, you probably have fewer arguments with people in church. If I took out chapters 9 through 11 from your Bible, you would not notice they were missing. Paul's discussion of righteousness flows perfectly from the end of 8 into the beginning of 12. That affirms for us that what we're about to go study now in these next three chapters are a sidebar in Paul's larger discussion on righteousness. His thesis on righteousness is essentially suspended for three chapters so he can deal with this other important question. Because frankly, if he doesn't deal with it, His Jewish audience, and even some of his Gentile audience, aren't listening anymore. They're too concerned with this apparent contradiction that they're not going to be paying much attention to what else he has to say. So Paul has to put the contradiction out of the way, and that's what we're going to be doing too. So we're going to be spending three chapters on this important question, just as Paul does, and then we pick up again in chapter 12 with his main theme. So let's look at the start of chapter 9, which is Israel's past. As we do this... You need to appreciate an important shift in Paul's focus. Where before Paul taught about an individual's relationship to God, now he's talking about a nation's relationship to God. And Paul uses these chapters to specifically address Israel's relationship, past, present, or future. Now, obviously, the nation is made up of individuals, and each of those individuals, each Jew within the nation, still has a requirement of personal faith if they are to be saved. That's not changing. But the question we're examining is, what do we make of God's obvious choice to leave the Jewish nation as a whole, largely speaking, outside the call of the gospel for at least a time? Because it's obvious he's done that. It's self-evident that the church is almost entirely Gentile. You don't have to be a statistician to figure this out. And it was obvious even in the first century when there were a lot more Jews in the area to be converted, so to speak, than there would be perhaps today. And yet it was very clear even then that the church was moving in one direction away from the Jewish people. And as we said, we know that God determines his elect. And so the question is, why did God not determine to embrace his own people? Why did he determine to go to a different group of people? That's a fundamental question 
And that's what Paul's trying to answer. So that distinction is important for us to remember, that Paul's talking about how God is dealing with a nation now, not necessarily how he's dealing with individuals, because that understanding is going to guide your interpretation on some important concepts that are in these chapters. So when we interpret Paul, we're always going to ask the question, is Paul speaking here about the experience of an individual believer, or is there something unique about Israel in what he's saying? Chapter 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. All right, this is Paul's opening, and it's a a diplomatic opening. Paul defending his motives here concerning Israel. I think Paul recognized he was wading into some dangerous waters, and his answers aren't going to necessarily please everyone. The history of the church, by the way, has validated Paul's concern in that regard. I mean, his explanations in this chapter and in the ones that follow have stirred considerable controversy in the church. I don't know of a faster way to get into a fistfight in the church than to debate chapter 9 of Romans. Hopefully not a fistfight, but I've had some moments where I wasn't sure what was going to happen next. I mean, there are many Christians who simply reject what Paul teaches in these chapters because they prefer a different explanation. So Paul has to begin by reassuring you and me and and the audience generally that he is no anti-Semite. It's kind of hard to believe anyone would think that Paul would be against the Jewish people, right? And yet, remember, Paul's ministry was to the Gentile in his day, even as he also spent time seeking Jews, as he said, But it would have been very easy for someone in that day to make a claim that Paul had rejected his own people and wanted to affiliate with the Gentiles and wanted to deny his Jewish background because his ministry was so obviously centered on on non-Jews, on Gentiles. So he starts by explaining God's plan for Israel. As he begins that, he wants his audience to trust his motives. Paul says, I'm not lying in what I'm about to say about Israel. And he adds, the Holy Spirit is testifying in agreement to all the words that I'm going to give you. Basically, what he's saying is the Spirit will agree with you in your heart that what you're hearing from Paul is, in fact, true. And then he says he grieves for Israel's loss as they reject Christ. In fact, he says if it were up to him, he'd be willing to trade his own salvation for Israel's salvation. Obviously, that wasn't possible. And Paul acknowledges that it's not a reality in the way he said it. But the very fact that Paul says this, and he's not lying, that's remarkable. Because Paul knew better than probably anyone, probably any of us certainly, of what he would have been trading away. He's seen things we've never seen. And that's not a deal most of us, if any of us, would make, is it? I mean, look, we might have thought very well about Jewish people and wished for the better things for others and so on, but you know what? I'm sorry, I'm not going to go to hell for you. That's a strong statement about Paul's personal convictions toward Israel. You can hardly indict Paul's genuine concern for Israel, given his willingness to spend eternity in hell for their sake, right? That's his point. Now with that, Paul says, speaking of Israel, he says, before I start telling you what God's plan is for them and his purposes and his past and so on, he says, let's get our definition straight. And so he opens here with a definition to guide our discussion. Verses 4 and 5, Paul defines Israel. And this is so important to everything that follows in these chapters. He says, Israelites, that is those who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He refers again to those three men as the fathers in verse 5. Secondly, they are a nation of people created by God and adopted as his people from among all nations of the earth. So they're distinct from other peoples. Third, they're the people who lived in the presence of God's glory in the tabernacle. So he's referring here to their wanderings in the desert and to their time after God set up the temple. He says they received the covenants of God. They received the law of God. They were given the instructions to build a temple and they received the promises through their prophets. And most importantly, they were the people from whom came Christ, as promised. Now, that definition is critical because it clarifies that Paul is talking about the earthly, physical Israel. That's the only kind of Israel that fits this definition. He's not talking about the church. He's not talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about some imagined group of, quote, spiritual 
Israel or some group of people who mimic Israel's lifestyle or culture or like to share in their beliefs, he can only be speaking of the literal physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who went through all the experiences of the Old Testament and whose progeny still walk the earth today. That's it. The people through whom Jesus came. Every other group of people is excluded from this definition forevermore. And concerning these people, what do we say about their past relationship with God? That's the focus now. For example, would we dare say that the people of God, these people, have failed to receive the promises that God said that they would receive? I mean, that's the crux of the issue. Are we prepared to say that God has failed to do what he said he was going to do for his people? We know in the past he called them special people, his people. He went to the trouble to form them out of nothing. He put them in the land. He dwelled among them. He promised them a Messiah. He brought them a Messiah, but he did not permit them to receive that Messiah, most of them. So what do we conclude from that? Paul asked that obvious question first in verse 6. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So up front, Paul addresses that concern. He's saying, no, you cannot conclude that God has failed at his promises. And then he gives the answer. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a child. All right, now you can already begin to see how important that definition of Israel was. Because he says, if you think that Israel's rejection of Jesus in his first coming means that the word of God concerning Israel has failed, see what he's saying? If you think that because Israel didn't receive Messiah when he came for them, that's telling us that God has rejected Israel, well, then you're looking at the wrong Israel. Because Paul says, they are not all who are descended from the man Israel, Jacob. Not all of them are God's Israel. Not all of the people who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not all of them are God's Israel. What Paul is saying is this. Here's how you understand this. To be considered Israel, it is necessary to descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it is not sufficient. It is necessary. Gentiles aren't included in this whatsoever. But even among those who are descended from him, it's not sufficient to simply be physically descended. There's more to it. There is more to being part of God's Israel than merely having the right paternal father. So if we're going to evaluate God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel, if we're going to judge him, then we first have to make sure we're looking at the right Israel. We must understand which is the group of people God gave his promises to in the past. And by looking at what happens to them, well, then we can evaluate God, perhaps. Paul proves his point with a couple of simple examples. First one is Abraham's children. Remember, Abraham had two kids. We often think about Isaac, but we may forget sometimes about Ishmael. Only one of them, though, received the promises God gave to Abraham. As Abraham lived and died, that promise didn't die with him. It moved on. And it moved on through one of his sons. He made his promise to Abraham before Abraham had any children. Abraham was childless, and God gave him promises. But later, Abraham learned that when God spoke those promises, he had one of Abraham's children in mind. You know, God knew there'd be two. And God had one of them in mind when he gave promises. And Paul shows evidence for this truth by quoting Genesis 21. That's where Abraham was told, no, 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 it won't be through Ishmael. It'll only be through Isaac that God will number, or you could say, consider Abraham's descendants. So Abraham had other descendants. There are other human beings walking the earth who were descended from Abraham who did not come from Isaac. But those descendants didn't receive the promises that God gave to Abraham. So if you were, for example, to go out into the world and find one of these Abrahamic descendants who are not through Isaac, but rather came through Ishmael, we would generally call them Arabs. If you were to find one of those today, and you looked at them and said, this person's not receiving the promises of God, God is unfaithful. Well, the answer from Paul would be, you've got the wrong people. You're not looking at the right people. They're not the ones God had in mind when he made the promises to Abraham. And I'm not condemning Arab people when I say this. I'm simply pointing out that his specific promise to Abraham had a specific line through which God intended to bring it. And that line, of course, was Isaac. God said he had already determined that. And you could say it this way. He knew who the elect would be. He spoke to Sarah saying it will come at a certain time, meaning there would be a certain son 
to receive this promise. Friends, what we're learning here is this choice is a prerogative God never relinquishes. He never relinquishes his prerogative to choose. Therefore, Abraham's example leaves us with an important principle that will carry us through the rest of this chapter and into chapter 10. It was not Abraham's earthly or fleshly children that are in view when God made his promises. It was a certain child called the child of promise. And that term child of promise means the child that God chose to reveal his promises to. And it was Isaac. There is nothing inherently better about Isaac over Ishmael. They didn't do anything to deserve God's favor or to reject or to lose that favor. That's why we call it grace. Isaac was simply chosen to receive the promises and Ishmael was not chosen to receive the promises. That is a distinction that God repeats throughout history. And if you're tempted to think that Abraham's situation is unique, Paul says, look at exhibit number 2, chapter 9, verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So one generation later, Isaac, Abraham's son, faces exactly the same situation of sorts. That is, he has a barren wife, wants to have kids, and then before he knows it, he has two. Only in his case, of course, it came in the form of twin boys through his wife, Rebecca. And once again, God demonstrates his prerogative to choose by telling Rebecca, I'm going to make sure that the older son serves the younger. That is to say, the older son would be subservient, would be lower in the family than the younger. And that's a, a cryptic way of designating the child of promise will be the younger. That's what he's saying. Now, in that culture, the older child received the patriarchal blessing as a birthright. He received the greater share of the family inheritance. Those were the ways it was done. But in the case of Isaac's family, there was another unique part of Isaac's estate that would have to be transferred after Isaac's death, a part of the estate to be handed down in the will, as it were. That unique part was the promise that God gave Abraham. That was an inheritable thing. It moved from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And the question became, when you have twin boys, well, who's going to get that unique part of dad's inheritance? Well, I'm the older. I should get it. That's the way men thought. God said before they were born, I'm going to flip the tables on that. I'm giving it to the younger. The younger will be my blessed child. And to make sure that we would understand that he acted apart from man's ways, God selects and makes known that selection before the child is born. Paul says, the Lord selected that timing to ensure that you and I would not sit here today and say, oh, well, the boys just got what they deserved. God knew about these boys and he decided he was going to just reward the good child and punish the bad child. Now, it's very specific. Paul says, before they had done anything good or bad, so that neither son had anything to commend or discredit himself before God. And Paul says the Lord did this to ensure we would conclude the right thing. That is, that the chosen child, that is the younger, was made so according to God's gracious choice, not by an act of human consideration. Merely, though, on the basis of God's call, his election of Jacob over Esau. And then he backs that with a quote from Malachi, declaring that he loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, those terms are really loaded with emotion for us, right? We use those terms in emotive ways. And so it sounds harsh at first to hear them come out of God's mouth with respect to his choice of one person over another. We feel as though we may need to explain that away, right? We need to somehow make God look better. Some say that, oh, this just reflects that God made his choice on the basis of what he knew they would be in the future. Sort of looking down the road, he knew how they would turn out, and that's why he chose one over the other. That's why he could hate Esau, because he knew how bad Esau was going to be. But Paul's earlier words preclude that interpretation, don't they? I mean, Paul goes out of his way to say, God said this in advance so that we would not come to that conclusion. So what do we have to understand? We have to understand those words, hate and love, come in the context of a discussion of God choosing. So in other words, their definitions, really, to be chosen by God is by definition to be loved. To be passed over by God is to be hated. Not in an emotional sense, as we think of the word, simply in the sense of being the opposite of love. To be non-loved. 
But the point is, it was God. That's the main point here. The point is, it was God who determined which boy would receive the promise. Not on the basis of personal merit. And friends, that's how God chooses throughout history. God elects, and he doesn't elect, not on the basis of merit, but merely on the basis of his gracious choice. And if you look at that for a moment, you see that as a common pattern in Scripture. God commonly chose those who the world would not expect to receive his honor. Isaac the younger. God gave him the choice over his elder. Same for Jacob over Esau. Same for Judah over Reuben. Same for Joseph over his brothers. Same for David over his brothers. And men like Moses and Gideon and many of the prophets and virtually all of the apostles, Paul in particular, they are all the most unlikely heroes chosen by God to do remarkable things. As Paul himself explains to the church, this pattern is intended to expose man's foolishness in the way we think so that he can show that he knows better than even the so-called wise men of the world. And he works against the nature of our thinking to show himself stronger than we could ever be. Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians this way, 1 Corinthians 1, 25. He says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on. Now doesn't the truth of God's sovereign election reveal God to be mean and unfair? Somewhere about now, for some of us, if not all of us, that becomes the overriding concern. This is probably the single most common and natural thought for every person who is introduced to the biblical truth of God's sovereign election. In fact, it's easily the most common reason for why many people refuse to accept the truth at all. It's become particularly strong sentiment in the Western Hemisphere in, in the last 200 years to be very freedom-minded and to think in terms of independence and equality and self-made men and all the rest and equal opportunity. And that's so ingrained into our political and social culture that we transfer that thinking into the Bible. And in that way, we sort of neuter God. We make God just a background player to human events. We automatically count it unfair anytime someone is without equal opportunity or complete self-determination And we assume those are good ideals in and of themselves. You've never tested those thoughts except to just assume that because everyone likes them for themselves, it must be good. Let me warn you, anytime you judge things to be good because you like them, you're on the rocky road. The idea that anyone or anything else may be in control of our destiny is, for the most part, offensive and just plain wrong to our thinking. Specifically, we would say, isn't it wrong that God is at work electing some but leaving others outside his grace, as he is shown to do in these examples, as Paul is saying he has done in Israel's history? Well, that's the question we address next week. <laughs> da 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 Next week we'll pick up there and we'll cover the rest of the chapter where Paul does, in fact, address that specific question of whether or not this is an unfair God as we see him portrayed in Scripture. Let's go to prayer once more. Heavenly Father, as I said on the outset, our understanding of the things you've written in Scripture will never be as complete as we may prefer, not this side of heaven, but we thank you, Father, for the clarity you've given, and we thank you, Father, for the boldness of what your Word declares, and as we may struggle to comprehend or agree or understand it all, Father, we ask that you would give us patience and a desire to learn it, a desire to to be faithful to it, and patience, love, and understanding with those who may not think as we do about what we see in the pages here. That we'd not let it become a dividing between those who know you, Father. Wouldn't it be a shame if your own word was used to divide the body of Christ, Father? We don't want to see that. So help us to understand him and to be patient in the meantime, Father. And bring us back next week so that we can continue to grow in our knowledge of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.